Welcome to the Overpopulation Podcast. I'm Dave Gardner, Executive Director of World Population Balance. World Population Balance works to alert, inform, and educate that overpopulation is a root cause of resource depletion, species extinction, and rising poverty. We advocate and support a smaller, truly sustainable population. Find us at worldpopulationbalance.org or search World Population Balance on Facebook. Laura Carroll is a leading voice on the child-free choice. She tracks and researches the child-free choice and those who make it. She has spent over 15 years doing that. She's interviewed and spoken with thousands who have made this choice. She ran the popular blog La Vie Child Free, and she's a prolific book author and editor. Her books include Manswarm, How Overpopulation is Killing the Wild World, with Dave Foreman, The Baby Matrix, Why Freeing Our Minds from Outmoded Thinking About Parenthood and Reproduction Will Create a Better World, and Families of Two, Interviews with Happily Married Couples Without Children by Choice. I spoke with Laura a few weeks ago on July 11th, World Population Day. Here's that conversation. Hi, Laura. How are you doing today? Great. Thank you. Well, August 1st is International Child-Free Day, and that is the day that we're publishing this podcast. And I think we have you to thank for that, right? Well, yes, it, it, I have to say it probably was my idea to resurrect uh, this day. Uh, it was a day that um, oh, a, an organization called the National Organization for Non-Parents that um, was around in the 70s, they, they did... Uh, Every year they did a they celebrated a non parents day and in 1973 they did something really fun and celebratory they uh, chose a male and female national non parent of the year and the man who won was a philanthropist and the woman was a teacher and they had them ride down Fifth Avenue in New York in an open top cab with even with laurel leaf crowns and were crowned non parent king and queen you know, near the Plaza Hotel. And I, several years ago, I learned about this and I thought, what a great idea it would be to, you know, over 40 years later, see if I could get a group of child-free authors and even bloggers and people out there talking about this choice to bring back the day as an annual recognition of people who choose, you know, not to have children. And so uh, we've been doing it for four years running now and it's been great. Well, that's pretty neat. Are the reasons for resurrecting that the same as the reasons for doing it originally? You know, that's a good question. You know, uh, the National Organization for Non-Parents, uh, in, in their day, the organization did some great work to educate society that parenthood was optional. And so I think in that sense, uh, we were about that uh, as well, one of the reasons why we're doing it today. You know, I think also just uh, we also want to have it be a way to recognize just amazing child-free people in their lives. And I feel like it's a great way to, a positive way to foster the uh, acceptance of this choice in, in t- t- today's society. So we're we're dovetailing a little bit, I think, on what that organization did some years ago. So the purpose isn't to take pity on those poor childless couples. <laughs> <laughs> Just the opposite. It's to celebrate lives, you know, that uh, where parenthood was not the central focus and to really highlight that there's many different ways to live life and in life with parenthood is just, just one of them. And you'll notice I mentioned childless, and I thought we should talk about why it's called Child-Free Day versus Childless Day, huh? Yes, good question. Yeah, there's a lot of talk online, and there has been for some years where some people go, what's the difference between child-free and childless, and why do you have to even discern the difference anyway? 
So there's different opinions. Mine is still stands that I think that at least where we are now, that uh, using the word child-free is more uh, pointing more towards people who consciously made that choice. It's not people who wanted children and for whatever reason don't have them. Um, We tend to use the word childless in that case. So um, that way it discerns between whether it's really a a conscious choice or or it's something that, you know, you really want but um, don't have. And and for the both groups of men and women for whom that applies, there's some, you know, big differences on um, how they see their lives and, and how they see parenthood in or not in it. Well, obviously, we're going to want to get into the subject of of why there is is some value in doing this celebration. But before we do, uh, let's kind of get through some of the just the housekeeping details about International Child Free Day. Uh, Now, we're recording this uh, podcast well before International Child Free Day. We're actually recording it on World Population Day, which is interesting in itself. And we might talk about that a little later. Uh, But but that means that while we're recording, you do not you cannot tell me who this year's honorees are, correct? I cannot yet, no, but I can tell you <clears throat> past winners, um, some examples of just uh, the kind of people that we each year I put together a selection panel, and uh, on that panel are uh, the winners from the year before and um, some child-free authors who are willing to to put in that time. And in past years, um, let's see, we've, we've awarded to people from all over the world. For example, the first year, a gentleman, a writer from Belgium, Belgium won, and a woman from the States uh, who was really dedicated to reproductive rights, and she's an author of a book called, I love this title, How Geek Girls Will Rule the World. <laughs> so she's, uh, she's up to some great stuff just in bringing more women into technology is something she's dedicated to. Another year, a a documentary filmmaker from Canada won. And last year, uh, a really great child-free guy who's dedicated his career to the service of our country. He's in the Navy doing some great things. Um, We chose him as the winner. So we really, each year, there's just, we get a variety of nominations. It's so wonderful to be able to review the nominations and then, do some great discussion on uh, who we choose to be the, you know, the winners of the each each award for the man and woman. So right now we're collecting some great nominations for this year, and so far it's from they're from the United States and a um, few countries in Europe. So on August first, you can go to internationalchildfreeday.com to find out the winners. <laughs> well, great. That was my next question. So you're one step ahead of me, Laura. <laughs> All right. Well, and before we uh, then before we move on into why the need for this, uh, maybe you could and maybe this is actually part of the answer. Can you uh, share with us a little bit about how and why you came to be so passionate about a world in which women are, are free of pressure to have children? Well, on a personal level, it goes back to, I would say, the late 90s, where at that time I had been uh, married for about 10 years and I went looking for a book about uh, long-time married couples who made that choice, because my husband and I had made that choice, and our friends, many of whom were starting to have children, already had them, and I was looking around for, who are those older couples that have been together for many years who never had kids because they didn't want them, and what was the key to them going to the, you know, going to the distance, as it were? I didn't find that book anywhere, so I decided I'd go out and find out myself. <laughs> 
and I uh, ended up conducting 100 interviews across the United States and uh, short stories. It, it was it, it was developed into Families of Two, my uh, second book actually, and um, and it was just it was recognized great internationally. It was clear that the you know people wanted to start having this conversation. So uh, that's how it all germinated, and uh, from there I've just continued to do some research, and that led me to doing the baby matrix um, but we can talk a little bit more about that if you want but it's so it, the families of two really sparked my interest from a personal level and then I've been doing just research uh, ever since and trying to you know submission to try to edu- educate more people about the choice and it's that it's really okay to make it well let's get into that why uh, it, it seems like it would just be natural that we all know it's okay to to, to make that choice. But the fact is there are things in our culture, there are myths in our culture, societal pressures that uh, that kind of distort that decision-making process. Boy, that's really a lot of what the baby matrix looks at and examines and tries to demystify and uh, really... The cultural pressures, you know, that are associated with myths, they're just, they're just so powerful. Uh, three are... Three of the most powerful, I think, just in uh, my you know research travels and just what I see out there as social and cultural norms. So one is just the idea that there's actually something wrong with you <laughs> if you don't want to raise children. Um, and as far as women go, it, the subcategory there would be that you're not really, really a true woman. You know, it's you're not really in a, a, a sign. It's not a sign. It's a sign of womanhood. You know, to have a child, and if you don't want to have a child, well, you're not quite that full woman. Um, another that's really powerful is that somehow we don't know tr- what true fulfillment in life is unless we include the raising of children in our adult lives. And third, this one is just so stubborn, too, that <laughs> I really ran across it when I was researching families of two, is this idea that somehow people who decide not to have children are just automatically selfish, you know, people. And really, it's, it's, so, it's so far from what I've learned. You know, so many people who make the choice are, they're busy contributing in, in other ways to the world and their communities, and uh, they find, you know, tr- really very rich fulfillment in their lives. So those are just three that I really take a look at and say, well, why do we believe this anyway? And what if we changed our, our mindset away from this myth um, that would then, you know, free people to make, uh, make decisions that are just probably they're better for them and what they want to do in their lives without this outside pressure telling them there's something wrong with it. You know, if they, they do what is they, what they want. So what so did you, what did you, what have you found so far in your research about, and, and tell me if it's changed, you know, over the 15 plus years that you've been uh, digging into this, uh, do, uh, what, what are the reasons most often cited by women for, choosing the number of children or, or choosing not to have children? Well, I think that uh, you hear many people, I'm sure by now have just heard that um, a lot of people, uh, what I found it with families of two and it's been, you know, again, 15, 16 years ago, a lot of it really still holds true today. Um, I think some people really do want to focus more on their work lives. They do have goals in their professional lives that they, they want to reach and they, they just feel that, adding parenthood would make that too complicated. And that certainly can include uh, people that are involved in uh, their, may not be their, their job that they make their money at, but it's a, another cause that they're, you know, passionately involved in. 
um, many talk have talked about and still do they talk about how bringing a marriage and a child into their marriage they just wonder how that would, will affect the marriage and they're not really sure it will end up affecting it in a positive way so they're very clear that the marriage is first and they really are looking hard at well, well what would happen to it if we added kids to to it uh, others thank goodness, have had, you know, environmental concerns, not as many as I would like, I have to say, but <laughs> there are some who really, that is the, the driving reason. Um, they have, you know, they don't want to add the carbon footprint, and some even are very uh, uh, mindful that they're not sure they want to bring a child into the world right now, so it's on that, you know, trajectory. And from a practical standpoint, a lot are very concerned just about the money it takes to raise them. It's, it's, it's very expensive to raise kids today. So those are all reasons, but I find that what's still really the nugget here is what's most important is no matter what their concerns are, when it comes down to it, really, their desire to raise a child uh, is not you know, greater than any of these concerns that they have. Or saying it another way, at the core, they just don't, they don't have a strong enough desire to, to, to to have the raising of children sort of be the central focus of their lives. So the point is they may have these um, objectives or other, you know, concerns, but underneath that there's really just uh, a lack of desire to, to have the raising of children be like, you know, the, the central uh, point in their adult lives. That's what I continue to find. That's what I found, you know, researching families of two. And really, if I really drill down in interviews today, that's really where it still lands. I suppose in a perfect world, we would hope that every couple would actually consider everything on that list when they're making that decision. Yes, and I think many do. And uh, many times people who actually make the choice not to have children are the ones who've really analyzed it, you know, and really, it really together um, laid out their concerns. And and uh, they think a lot about it. I think that's a myth, too, that, that uh, people who make the choice not to just don't want to have kids or they don't like kids. And it's really not the case for many couples. It's, you know, it can be a, it's something that really needs a very hard hard look and to them to come to a decision, which I find, I think it's a good thing. I think it's a responsible way to approach it because it's, it's a big job and it's really something very important to do. So. so you mentioned these myths that are, I guess we could put under the heading of cultural pressures to have children and, uh, uh, and similar subject, almost identical would be societal acceptance of choosing not to have children. What, uh, mm -hmm. what, what do women and and is it just women? I suppose it's probably fathers or potential fathers as well. What do they experience in the world? How do they experience these pressures? How do they manifest themselves? Good question. Well, certainly um, the cultural and social pressure around the idea that there's something wrong with you. They, I think, a lot of child-free people feel judged in that way. That um, that others see them as you know they're missing something or or something's just not right about them, or they believe that it will only be a matter of time before they'll see what they really want, <laughs> and that is to have kids. So, and then the child-free uh, get a little oh, put off by that, by saying, well, how is it that you somehow know me better than me? <laughs> so there's a judgment realm, but there's also, uh, I find a lot of 
pressures that uh, fall into maybe one of three categories. One very common is what I just like to call a relational pressure, where we can get this pressure from loved ones or even our parents that, you know, they want us to do what they did as, as a way for us to be closer with them and have something huge in common. And, you know, that's a good thing. To be closer is good. So it's to strengthen. The pressure comes from an intention to strengthen and, uh, the relationship and be closer. But then in the process, sometimes you can, you, you, we might get what I consider guilt-driven <laughs> pressure where it's, you know, kind of intended to make you feel badly uh, about doing what others want you to do. And it can can come in any lot of different ways from how someone might say to you and your family, how you're disappointing the family, you're disappointing our parents, you know, or you'll be responsible for your spouse's, you know, lack of fulfillment in life, whether that's true or not. Um, and this also applies to, by the way, if you already have children, such as you only have one child, that others may give you this guilt-driven pressure that, you know, you, you know John, Johnny really needs a, a sibling to really be a well-adjusted child, <laughs> which is a complete myth, and we can talk about that if you want. But then thirdly, there's just uh, what I call nosy to invasive pressure. And these are just things that are just go, you know, maybe over the top where loved ones or parents are asking directly about potential physical or, you know, emotional problems that might be going on in the relationship or, you know, or have you decided to go off the pill? Or I've even heard from a few couples already that their parents have said, we'll buy you a house if you guys have a kid. <laughs> I guess that would be beyond invasive. That could be considered bribery. <laughs> wow. Well, I was sitting. I, I was sitting here thinking that most of this sounds like it's things that come up in conversation. That it's probably not that uh, a landlord won't rent you a house because you don't have kids. You probably don't run into that Quite kind like of thing that. too often. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we probably need more of that. Just you know, coming from the standpoint of a sustainable population advocate, which you know I am, I would. Uh, right. I, I might be tempted to applaud that. But I have to say that I, I run into very few women who have adult children who aren't kind of, you know, anxious to have grandchildren. Very few. I've run into very few women who say, no, I don't want grandchildren or I, you know, or I'm ambivalent about it even. Oh, yes. You mean um, would-be grandparents saying, yeah. oh, I don't really care about that. It's not important to me. Yes, I think you're right. Um, I think where we are, this maybe dovetails a little into where we are in terms of the acceptance of this choice just to, from a bigger society level or look is I think with every generation, it, we're seeing more acceptance of this choice just socially and culturally, honestly. But where I find it um, still stuck a little is, 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 what is it, the NIMBY idea, you know, not in my backyard, is I think would-be grandparents are okay with it if it's somebody else's adult child who makes that choice, for example. But as soon as it's their children, hmm. then it can get a little more complicated. Then, then they, they come up against, well, we really do want to be grandparents. And so then, then they go down, a, you know, the, the common road of, some pressure of some kind. That's pretty <laughs> Whether interesting. Whether it be just, you know, yeah. guilting them or, or, you know, whatever it works in, say, in their family system. So, yeah, I think a lot of uh, would-be grandparents, they, they do want their kids to do what they did. Um, and so that, 
too, also is really important to be able to talk about, um, like when couples say they're getting pressure and they want that pressure to stop. That conversation absolutely needs to include, you know, an understanding, seeking a mutual understanding for, for the would-be grandparents they to really understand that they're, they, they need to see what's, what's really in it for them. Why are they pressuring their adult children the way they're pressuring them? Why is it so important to them for them to become grandparents, you know, to take it to a deeper level? And I found that when families can do that, or even with friends and loved ones, if you can go there, I think it really can nip the pressures in the butt if it's done well. I imagine you have some pretty good advice for anyone who's uh, kind of experiencing some of these pressures, how to deal with that, how to put a stop to that. Yeah, and what I was just uh, referring to certainly is one of those steps. But um, yeah, like over the years, I've I've think I just call it a quick four part strategy. That one is uh, if you are getting pressure, um, what the first thing not to do is to lie. And in previous generations, I think this has happened more, where a couple might say that, you know, the reason they're not having kids is because they're having trouble to having, having a child or getting pregnant or, you know, that something's physically wrong to send that message so that people will just be quiet and feel badly for them. And then, then we're done with talking about that. Um, but yet, you know, if you do that, then and sometimes you have to continue that lie, which is not good. So instead, I'd say it's really just obviously very important to be clear in your own mind about why you've made the choice. And, and honestly, sometimes I've talked to people and I really ask them, and it takes them a little while to, to articulate it in a, in a very uh, succinct way and be prepared to really tell others in that succinct way. So some prep involved in just thinking about and planning how you want to state it to people who are, say, giving you this pressure. And if you're married or in any kind of uh, committed relationship, it's so important to present a united front because a lot of times I've found if it's the, the woman who makes the first comment or starts talking about why she doesn't want to have kids, often his family will think that the reason they're not having kids is because of her and when really it's because they both made that choice. So it needs to be very clear. Um, and then third, just to nip the pressures in the bud, like don't wait to talk about it. I can't tell you how many stories I've heard over the years where a couple sat on whatever pressure they were getting. And, and sometimes the interrogation from the people giving them, the pressure became so intense that, that the, the whole conversation had a breaking point and an argument started and it went down a whole road it didn't need, need to go on. So it's, it's don't wait once you're feeling it from folks. And then fourth is what I referred to earlier is, is, is the seeking mutual understanding is we need to have to be able to ask others, you know, why is it that you want me to have children? Sometimes with would-be grandparents, it means admitting that, you know, they might have concerns that if their adult kids don't have kids, it may reflect badly on them in terms of how they raised those kids. So they're fearing judgment from others based on what their adult children are doing or not doing. Maybe they want grandchildren because they want to feel more fulfillment in their later years, and that's taking more precedence or more importance than, gee, what's really important to my adult child and his or her spouse. So getting to that level of conversation, I feel like if they can 
understand why their motivations for wanting their kids to do something they want them to do um, and that they acknowledge that, that the pressure really stops most of the time. So what it really means is you really need to seek some kind of mutual understanding. That's what I've found work. If couples really just are mindful about trying those those four steps, um, a lot of times it brings the families closer because they understand each other more. And I think that that's huge. I would imagine that the more self-doubt you have about your decision, the less effective you are in fending that off. And conversely, the more uh, confident you are about uh, that it's okay, uh, that it's mm-hmm. not unnatural to make uh, the choice to be child-free, the, the better you handle that communication. Absolutely. I think so. I think the, the, the uh, step that you really be clear in your own mind why you feel, why you feel this way and be prepared to, to talk about it and have a couple of focus on that um, until they're ready is really, really important. And if, and if you're not sure yet and you're still in that process of deciding, well, that that's what you say. So, and the same steps apply if, if others are still pressuring them, you know, on, hey, make up your mind or it'll, it's only a matter of time before you'll, you'll see, you know, that you'll want them. You still get pressures in that indec- indecision mode, but that too, if they can go to seeking mutual understanding of like, hey, why are you so intent on me, you know, making this decision yesterday? <laughs> <laughs> So the the steps really still do apply. And they also apply too. again, well, if you have one child and all the myths around one child and how we're supposed to have another one, um, that seeking mutual understanding is also really important. The the would-be grandparents who want that boy, in addition to the, you know, granddaughter, well, why is that anyway? Um, To go go there, I think, is not uncommon. So... Well, you've mentioned that twice now, and it's time for me to yeah. bite. It's time for me to bite. And let's talk about that one child. <laughs> that one child. Well, you myth. know, in terms of in terms of population, I think that we would probably both agree that uh, we would we would promote and want couples to think about you know stopping at one child, you know, and mm-hmm. or in or be open to the idea of not having any. So. There's just some huge myths around the one child that I think makes it very hard for people to to make that decision. Is that something that you found out there as well? Oh, definitely, definitely. And I'm really looking forward to having some expert uh, debunking going on here. (laughs) Because, yeah, there's, there's so many people who are afraid that they're not doing, that they're harming their child if they if they stop at one that they're going to raise a child who is not socially uh adept or uh, you know somehow is behind the eight ball right right well this is so interesting that um to to go back to where this bias began uh it goes back at least in my research to the late 1800s with a psychologist whose name was Stanley Hall and he was kind of like the Victorian era's, era's Dr. Spock. And uh, he did a study back then on, quote, peculiar and exceptional children. I mean, I just remember that phrase. It's really hard to forget. <laughs> With about a thousand child subjects. And he loosely defined that with reasons that were psychological or physical. And so he found 4%, okay, 4% were only children that fell into that category. So somehow he concluded that that number was entirely out of proportion to children generally. And it meant that an only child is very likely to be peculiar and exceptional, which, I mean, it's just amazing. So the math doesn't seem right. 
No, it doesn't. So, as you might imagine, his studies have been criticized for reflecting his own beliefs. Um, and in actuality, his boyhood included he was one of many siblings, okay? He had lots of brothers and sisters. So, <laughs> it's still a mystery to me, even though the studies after Halls did not really stand up to the rigors of good research. Somehow, uh, this, the idea has stuck and become conventional wisdom until a really great professor, Tony Falbo, who uh, is a professor of educational psychology and sociology. I think, uh, I think she's still at the University of Texas, Austin. She looked at past studies more closely, and they, she and her colleagues analyzed well over 100 studies of only children in the United States across class, race, uh, from, I think, the early, by mid-20s, by, say, 1925, I believe, and they looked at a, ver- a number of variables like adjustment, character, achievement, intelligence. They found that only children weren't measurably different from any other kids, except that, you know, along with, say, firstborns or, uh, and people who only have one sibling, they scored higher on measures of intelligence and achievement. So not only did they find that those kids are no more likely to be lonely, shy, selfish, or even maladjusted, you know, than, ch- than children with siblings. Uh, personality studies don't make any, you know, distinguishing differences. So she really tried to get out there and, um, you know, promote and say that, hey, only children really ex- experience benefits <laughs> that, you know, for example, they don't have sibling rivalry, which, you know, can have an impact on a person's life. There have been studies done about that as well when it was particularly difficult. And um, they don't have to fight for affection. You know, they, they, they don't have to c- compete for their parents' attention. They tend to be, you know, more, you know, achievement in the high, high scores and achievement and intelligence. So she was really a pioneer in, in trying to demystify this only children um, thing. And I think it's, it's, we see more people having one child, but honestly, I think it's because it's more back to that financial reason. It's a pragmatic decision, which is okay with me, you know, the motivation, whatever works for folks. But I think the the myths are still a little, they're still pretty powerful, you know, that the the only children are looked at maybe as like, oh, they're going to be a little more spoiled or self-involved and you know, really a lot of that, it can happen in families that, with, with kids with siblings as well. So the, 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 the Stanley Hall to the Tony Falbo story is really, really a great one on how, how shoddy research just sticks. And then, then we have to end up, you know, trying to unravel it years later. Well, thanks for enlightening us on that. Laura Carroll, let's go back to the, pro, you know, you mentioned progress has, has been made. And I would guess that a big part of that would have to do with just the role of of women, g- gender equality. Even though we haven't quite uh, reached a hundred percent success there, but it, but if you go back, you know, fifty, sixty, seventy years when women uh, didn't have much opportunity in the workplace, they were expected to be at home. I would think that you know, wow, then your options for fulfillment would be a lot more limited, and you would be a lot more inclined to say, well, obviously, I got married; it's time to have kids. And I'm, which, right. have, have we seen that a lot of that attitude changing just because women have so much more? The world is their oyster today. I would say that a key point on the timeline is when um, the pill became available to all women. So that gave families uh, the power to plan 
um, you know, when they wanted to have children. And I use that word very specifically because I think at, at that time, the idea of not having children, it was out there and talked about, but really um, the power of the pill was it, it really put family planning into a whole new stratosphere and, you know, it helped people time their, their, their births with their children. And I think that another t- point on the timeline was really around the time that Families of Two came out was when really the internet was just getting going. And I don't know about you, but I remember the first time I got onto a search engine and thought, what the heck is that? Um, it was <laughs> new. And But the last 15, 16 years, you know, websites, the blogs, our, our online culture has really I think, fueled uh, an explosion, really, of information and education about about opting out of parenthood. And prior to that time, you know, lots of things written about it and et cetera, but the, the digital uh, world has really, I think, helped that those who've made the choice and the educate, education about it really come out of the tributaries of society. So it's, yes, was cultural from the 50s and 60s, but boy, the digital revolution has really, I think, um, made the progress, generationally speaking, uh, go faster than if we didn't have it. Huh. That's uh, something to think about. And you made me think, wow, we really do. We take the pill for granted, although lately we don't take it for granted (laughs) as much as we used to. (laughs) Right. Because that seems to be, you know, even that is under attack. But uh, yes. but, you know, I think I, I see even today where certainly in industrialized modern nations like the United States where it's not that difficult to, uh, to access the pill or certainly condoms and, uh, and, right. and even getting easier in some places to, uh, to take advantage of other forms of contraception. I think there are still some, you know, even teenage girls who haven't been raised to expect – uh, anything else out of life other than to get married and have children? Well, I th- certainly think it's modeled for them the most um, by their their own families. And our culture definitely uh, models it very powerfully. Um, and the, I talk about a lot that a lot in The Baby Matrix. I, in it, Families of Two, I did that book and that led me to start asking the question, well, why does it, why does society find this choice so hard to accept anyway? And that led me down what I just like to call a rabbit hole because I went back like generations in time, back to the times of Augustus, for goodness sake. And um, there's a set of beliefs called pronatalism that exalts the role of parenthood. And that's been the bedrock of a lot of social and cultural norms for many, many years, many generations. And I think our young women today, you know, those norms are still very powerful that um, they, they, they see them, they feel them, they think that's what's normal. And what I'm trying to do is to have those younger generations, and in the book I market it specifically to, people, say, millennials and people in college to say, you need to really look at those beliefs because, honestly, that's all they are. It's like been in our cultural hardware for so long. People think that, you know, again, it's wrong if you don't have the desire to have children. Well, if you really analyze it, it's a myth. <laughs> so we need to break free of these beliefs and have these younger people see that, see that that's all that they are so that they're freer to make 
better decisions for themselves as they grow into their adult lives and help them see that in a world of 7 billion and, you know, continuing to, to, you know, increase just exponentially that what every, what every birth really means and what it means if, if they're the ones who bring those, those next children into, into the world. So those young, you're, you're spot on in, the, in, in terms of um, going right to young people and helping them see the bigger real picture. You've been uh, talking quite a bit about two of your books, Families of Two and The Baby Matrix. It sound like they're extremely valuable. I want to get into Manswarm for a minute, but before I forget, uh, what's the best way for someone to uh, find out more about these books and purchase them? Just go to my website, lauracarroll.com. Easy to find them right there. Easy as pie. Okay. All yep. right. <laughs> All right. Now, Manswarm's a little bit more uh, complicated book, and uh, would you care to give us a quick explanation of, of how you got involved in that project? Yes. Um, as I was researching uh, The Baby Matrix, I ran across a gentleman named Dave Paxson. <laughs> I know well, that guy. I know guy. you know. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> and uh, I wanted to uh, just learn about more of the population issue because I was looking at a pronatalist assumption we have that all around the right to have children, that anybody who is biologically capable should be able to have children whenever they want. And, and I was looking at more the the, mm, the social and cultural uh, negative effects associated with that. So overpopulation, I uh, was looking at that and researching that. I see, saw Paxson's name uh, a lot, so I called him. And it wasn't far into our conversation where we both went, the best book I've read, you know, to date, you know, is, is Mansform by Dave Foreman. And we thought that was quite the coincidence. But we also agreed that the first edition was really written for a conservationist community and not to say, not per se to uh, someone in, in his or her 20s, you know, in college. And so we got the idea to, um, to do a second edition that was really designed to um, be more for the masses, for them to understand the overpopulation crisis. And we got a generous grant to do that. And we got a secondary grant that we're in the, still in the process of uh, implementing is to get the book in schools and uh, colleges and uh, two-year community colleges. So we're in play with that, and it's going really well. So I'm super excited about that. So how's the college program working, and is there anything a listener can do to help us with that? If you want to help with that, just I would say go to my website and just uh, go click the Contact Me uh, little button at the bottom of the homepage and uh, just email me that because we've, we've put the message out via you know, social media as well as um, just doing um, – putting lists together to seek out professors um, in the United States and Canada, really all over the world. Um, and so if, if you are a professor, I guess that's obvious, if you are a professor and you're interested in receiving a, a free complimentary review copy, um, more than happy to send it to them. So if you know anybody who is in that profession who might want to see the book, um, we're giving them out complimentary just to see if people want to use them in their coursework. And uh, so far, I mean, I, ex I expected professors, you know, in environmental studies, maybe environmental sociology, we'd want them to, they'd be open and look to, to looking at the book. And it's definitely been so, but I've gotten requests from uh, professors in psychology and in uh, uh, social problems area of study in universities, 
ethics classes, philosophy, even religious studies. So very interesting. You know, I think that a lot of professors uh, understand population is an issue that it, it, it's, it, it, it's into many other realms, you know, socially and culturally in our world. So, uh, so far we've got uh, well over a hundred reviewing the book and, and counting. And um, my hope is that it will be used, you know, in full or in part in a lot of classrooms. Well, that's, uh, that's good to know. Uh, wrapping up, uh, I mentioned earlier that we're recording this uh conversation on July 11th, World Population Day. And obviously throughout the the thread here, we've uh, alluded to the connection between uh, uh, family size choices and overpopulation. But I want to give you a chance to speak more directly to, to that. Uh, what, what are your thoughts about the link there and the importance of it? Well, it's, it's a powerful link because I feel that, um, and there's a reason why I did the books that preceded Man's Form. It just felt to me that um, if, if people can see through the myths we have about parenthood, then it re- releases them uh, from these cultural and social norms. And being released from that or seeing beyond it, it makes them, you know, it will make them freer to make decisions that are best for them. And it will also help people. Uh, with that new freedom, they can see that what it means to bring another child into the world. And they're more, uh, my hope and belief is that they, we will find more people actually choosing not to bring more children into the world because they see the larger picture and they see that it's more than okay not to bring that child into the world. So the link between demystifying these norms and population stabilization and reduction is powerful. And so I think that, that um, so I'm very motivated to have more people know about that. And, and it's the same again for families with one children, you know, that um, it's really busting through the myths that you've got one biological child. It's really okay really okay, more than okay <laughs> for that child. And um, it's also uh, it's probably the best choice for the world to stop there. Well, it strikes me that there are, uh, there are two things that have to happen in order for us to be making the decisions we need to be making in order to uh, really to give future children, all the future children of the world, a fair shot at living good lives. One is that we've got to uh, get past this mythology and understand that it's perfectly natural to uh, to, ha- to not have children at all, or to only conceive one. Uh, And the other is, uh, I think young couples who are making these family size choices really need to know that the world is overpopulated, that we're beyond 7 billion, and that the scientists who've done the most credible research on this so far tend to all uh, agree that a sustainable world population is somewhere well below 3 billion. Uh, there's some disagreement right. about whether it's a billion or two billion or, or what, but we know we're way beyond that. Uh, but I think most, many, many couples do not know that we are, no. you know, that the world's biocapacity is being injured year year after year because of the number of us on the planet. Yeah, I to- totally agree. I do feel, though, as someone who's come out of in academia, the sociology and psychology, that I think even if they know these truths about overpopulation intellectually, if they still have these attitudes and beliefs grounded in, oh, but there's something wrong with me if I don't want children, if they still believe that, it's very difficult for them to still make the decision based on those intellectual factors. So that's why I 
push so hard on, you know, the, the things I talk about in the baby matrix is we've got to, we've got to look harder at why we think the way we do about parenthood such that then it will become easier for people to go, oh, and yeah, of course it's a problem. Look at these numbers. So I think from the emotional attitudinal uh, comes the behavioral change. Yeah, that's you're, just you're, maybe maybe my bias. <laughs> well, I will agree. You're doing the more important work, and and thank you for that. And I hope you will continue, Laura Carroll, to track this and come back to us with uh, with new information and new updates and and new ways of kind of getting at that emotional uh, any of the emotional triggers to help people do the right thing. I hope to. Thanks so much, and I really, really applaud and respect your work. You're right, right in there. I just, you're just, I follow, have followed your work for some time, and um, I want to thank you for that as well. Well, thanks for a great conversation, Laura. You too. Thank you. That was Laura Carroll, a leading voice on the child-free choice. Her books include *Man Swarm*, *The Baby Matrix*, and *Families of Two*. For more information about International Child-Free Day, you can visit internationalchildfreeday.com. Also, to follow Laura Carroll and check out her books, visit lauracarroll.com. That concludes this episode of the Overpopulation Podcast. I'm Dave Gardner, Executive Director of World Population Balance. We work to alert, inform, and educate that overpopulation is a root cause of resource depletion, species extinction, and rising poverty. We advocate and support a smaller, truly sustainable population overpopulation is solvable. We're a 501c3 nonprofit. We appreciate your financial support. You can find out more about us at worldpopulationbalance.org.